I was having some fun the other day just thinking about uh, how certain individuals have their, their kind of their pet message, you know. And, uh, and when you get to know people well enough, you can kind of tell what they're going to talk about. And uh, you just you, you just know it, you know. It's, it's just it's churning inside of them. Every one of us has been painted with that special color, and uh, and, and the colors come out. We just can't get away from it. So I wondered if I was to guess what you thought that I would end up saying. Uh, you know, every Sunday when I get up here, some part of of Eric always comes through in the message. It's just, I mean, we we try to make it all about Jesus, but the truth is that you know we're still vessels. We're still carrying the glory of the Lord. So some part of us is some in some way going to be reflected in what it is that we say. Our personalities come through, and uh, and so I, I wondered, huh? I wonder if these guys have already, after 20 years of listening to me preach, I wonder if these guys have figured out that what just keeps me going. The same, you know, what's my tick? What would I have? And then I thought, I don't really know that I want to know that they know that. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, if I gave out a poll and then they told me, well, this is what you do. You know, you stand there and then you shift, the, shift your weight and you do the same thing every time you pick your nose or whatever. Um, you know, all those little quirks that we have, I thought that would be rather amusing. But, but also I would be pretty nervous to hear what it is that I do all the time. Um, you know, the, the writers of the New Testament had a couple of, of their pet things as well that they, that they would always bring forward. Um, when you think about the Apostle James, what, what, uh, what do you think was James's pet message? Faith without works is dead. Uh, it's so true. Well done. That's exactly. I mean, I think about James, and that is exactly what I think. James was just pragmatic, wasn't he? And he was always going to bring you back to that. How about the Apostle Paul? What's his thing going to be? I mean, I know he had a lot, but there's any, is there any, anything in particular that you think is, is sort of the hallmark of the Apostle Paul? Grace. Probably grace, right? Probably grace through faith. And, uh, and he was, uh, in almost every letter, he's got something to say against righteousness that we try to achieve through, through following the law and how Jesus has set us free with this incredible grace giving us a righteousness we didn't deserve. And that's kind of the pet message of the Apostle Paul, isn't it? I mean, there are a few others, but that's probably the big one. How about Peter? What do you think about when you think about Peter? Anybody? No? Hope, living hope. Yeah, that's First Peter, is living hope. That's right. That's good. I mean, look at you. You're just getting full marks in the front row over here. She's got her notepad out and her pen. And she's got a Bible by her side. I'm telling you, this is the way church ought to be, right? Yeah. Endurance. Oh, oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I think James and Peter both hit on that endurance thing really well. The, the writers of the New Testament kind of have these favorite, these favorite themes. I mean, Mark, the, the gospel writer, he, he seems to use the word immediately a whole lot. Have you noticed that? And um, it, it's his, that's his favorite word. It, it shows up again and again and again. Uh, read through it. Next time you read through the gospel of Mark, look for the word immediately. You'll be surprised. Underline it. it. It comes up hundreds of times, it seems, in the first chapter. You know, It's always there. But uh, there's an immediacy and an urgency to his letter and just this faith building that comes through that. What is your default message when you are one day going to be remembered for certain things that you say, certain things that you do? What is your default message? What, what's going to be what people remember most about what came out of your heart? It's a good question, isn't it? I think about it uh, frequently. How do I present myself? And, and uh, we used to have this game that we played at home uh, when the kids were younger. It was default face. We, we'd always try and pick out the default face. You know, that face that you have when nobody else is looking and you're not really thinking about it. What is your default face? 
You can always tell the default face when somebody's driving. It's true, because once they get driving, they forget about everything else in the world, and the default face happens. Is the default face a scowl? Is it a frown? Is it a, is it a smile? Is it laughing? Are you singing with your default face? I think I'm very serious, very, very serious. I, I would challenge you if, you, if you happen to pass me driving sometime and I'm unaware, see if you can snap a picture of me. Send me a picture of my default face while I'm driving. And uh, I think I'm just serious as a heart attack. I do. <laughs> I think Scott's is always linked to music. Scott Curry has always got some music going. It's always going in his pocket. He's got his, his phone on, and he's, he's always worshiping the Lord with something. Uh, I think Rita's Reader, always praising the Lord and always writing hallelujah with big, bold letters. And, uh, and that's kind of that defines her. I think it's how we remember her. I invite you to take the challenge this holiday season uh, of just finding out what your default message is. What is your default message? What's your default face? What's your default? What has become the normal for you? And, uh, and then ask yourself the question, in what way does this mimic Jesus? In what way am I growing into the fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ? And how is my default becoming more and more like Christ's default? To where I'm living like Jesus on purpose without actually even thinking about it. It's a powerful thought, isn't it? Well, it's not the message for today, but it was a thought that I had. And it's kind of like the little devotion. Maybe it's what you'll remember when you go home today. Is uh, What is default to you? Well, to, uh, uh, to talk about the season and the first Sunday of Advent, I really enjoy like. I would really invite you, I'd like you, to turn to Luke chapter 1. Look at me getting tongue-tied in the pulpit. Luke chapter 1 has a story which is rather remarkable. And um, it's, it works well with our Advent theme. And uh, not a bad idea for us to focus on Advent because this year Christmas falls on a Sunday. And we are going to have a Christmas Sunday morning service right here at Living Hope. And uh, it'll be abbreviated, short service, so you can go home and, you know, have your, your, your Christmassy things. But, but we'll, have a, we'll have a service from 10 till 11. And um, there won't be a whole lot of, there won't, we won't do breakfast on that morning. We won't, do, um, uh, we won't do worship rehearsal and that kind of stuff. But we will have a service from 10 till 11. And you can uh, get up a little bit later, come to church, and, and we'll read the Christmas story together. And we'll celebrate it's a Sunday, the 25th of December. That's right. And, uh, and we'll read the Christmas story together and we'll thank the Lord for his immeasurable gift. And we'll do that as a family. And uh, anyway, that's just there. But as we work our way up to Christmas Day, there are some beautiful stories in the Advent, uh, the Advent uh, uh, accounts of Luke chapters 1 and 2 and, of course, Matthew. And, um, and, and I was thinking about this last night uh, because it seems really... There's a really cool thing that happened this summer. And I don't know if you caught it, if you were aware of it, but um, it's more than cool. It's cool is the wrong word. Something miraculous took place. And, um, and it got me thinking about our mission and our purpose as believers and about the timing of the Lord with the way things happen. And uh, as you know, for many years now, uh, here in the United States, the church has prayed fervently to overturn that, uh, that Roe versus Wade ruling. And uh, on June 24th of 2022, on a Friday, uh, that uh, ruling was overturned in a, uh, in a new, a new uh, Supreme Court case. 
And it was absolutely, absolutely wonderful. A victory in prayer. And uh, some of you may recall, uh, some of you have been Christians for a long time, and years ago, how many of you ever remember the March for Jesus? Anybody ever march in the March for Jesus? Um, I remember back in the day, we used to uh, gather in our, in our cities, and there was a special day, a special Sunday once a year, where um, all around the world, people would gather to march in, in a parade, basically, and we would, uh, we would celebrate Jesus publicly. And it was a really big thing for a while. It was a big thing. And then I remember after the March for Jesus and the, you know, the um, trips to Washington and so forth and, and, uh, and the Promise Keepers movement, I remember that there was a movement that followed that was people gathering in, in Washington, D.C. to pray, to pray that God would overturn the, um, uh, the Roe versus Wade uh, abortion rulings and, and that God would forgive our nation for the innocent blood that has been spilled. And... Um, and I remember when that seemed to be a really strong thing for the church. And then it was as if we, we shifted gears, we changed focus. The evangelical church sort of moved on from that. It was like, it was like uh, maybe that was our parents' war. And the younger generation didn't really tackle that anymore. But God still honored the prayers. And, um, and this June, we had that that ruling. What was remarkable to me about that, and what I think is important for you to know, is that that day, June 24th, was a very, very important day in the Catholic calendar, in the religious calendar. Does anybody know what June 24th is? In the, in the Catholic calendar, it is the celebration of the birth of John the Baptist. And um, this year, it happened to be, uh, it, it coincided, very rare uh, uh, coincidence, that, the, uh, that the, the celebration of John the Baptist also fell in with the religious calendar, the celebration of the Sacred Heart. And so, we're not Catholics. Uh, but we can learn a lot from our Catholic brothers and sisters, uh, even from, from their traditions and, uh, and things that we have, um, as a church, we, we have not adopted those, those traditions and, and so forth. But, but there's a lot to be learned from those things. And uh, the celebration of special days, special events, uh, is probably a good, a good thing on many levels, because remembering where the church has come from and where the church has been, remembering the great people of the church could actually teach us a great number of things about decisions we have to make today and tomorrow. Anyway, the Pope decreed that the celebration of John the Baptist would be held on June 23rd. Uh, everywhere in the world uh, this year, instead of June 24th, so that the Sacred Heart could be celebrated on the 24th, unless, of course, St. John was this, the patron saint of a particular city or a country or whatever it might be. So we happened to be in Spain uh, on June 24th, and um, it, was, it was huge news, of course. The, um, the decision, the Supreme Court overturning of Roe v. Wade, was, was world news. So we, we heard about it in Spain. But because we were in Spain, St. John the Baptist being the patron saint of the city that we were in, there was a big celebration for St. John the Baptist. And then it occurred to me, while we were in that place, that that was the most 
uh, what's a word I could use? I think the most divinely orchestrated day for the overturning of that of that rule. Because as it turns out, there is one passage of scripture that absolutely categorically, without a shadow of a doubt, shows what the Bible feels about the unborn. There is one passage of scripture which is undeniable in valuing the unborn. And it's right here in Luke chapter 1. And I want to read it to you because I think it's really, really important. It says here in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. It's quite an amazing statement about someone to say that they're that upright. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. There's a contradiction here. There's a contradiction in those verses because John and Elizabeth, I mean, um, Zechariah and Elizabeth here uh, have been clearly stated to be without fault. They're blameless people. And yet she's barren and barrenness is a curse in the Old Testament. Barrenness is a result of, uh, of a curse, or so it seems. And, uh, and so there's this contradiction there. And how wonderful that the Holy Spirit of God should choose, that God should choose these people who in the eyes of, of a world who would be judging the, by external appearances would say, oh, they must have some secret sin going on here, that God would choose these people that the world would have rejected because of the fact that they were just unable to bear children. God would choose them and say, ah, the one who is barren will have children because that's what God does. So in this contradiction, there is also redemption in God choosing these people. It's such a beautiful story. Anyway, moving on from there. Uh, now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense, the greatest honor for any priest. <clears throat> apart from entering into the Holy of Holies once a year as the high priest, but that, that's a high priest alone who gets to do that. This is a once-in-a-lifetime once opportunity for Zechariah and something he probably waited for his whole life long. It's a great honor to be given this, chosen by lot, of course. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, <laughs> as he should have been, of course. And he fell down, and fear fell upon him. I'm sorry. Um, and, and the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. What prayer? That's a good question. <clears throat> your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. In that verse right there, the Bible is 100% clear. The unborn carry the Holy Spirit. This unborn child would be filled with the Holy Spirit of God 
even from his mother's womb. Now, one could say, from his mother's womb, conjecture, well, that means once he comes out of his mother's womb, but no, even in his mother's womb. From the time that he is in his mother's womb, this is what is nuanced within this, and there are some who argue back and forth about it, but it seems pretty clear to me that from the time that he's in the womb, he's filled with the Holy Spirit of God, which is absolutely life-changing. Placing value upon the unborn in a way that is undeniable for believers. Well, it turns out that Roe v. Wade was overturned on the day we celebrate the birth of John the Baptist. And I thought about that in Spain when it happened, because I was just overwhelmed by the, the serendipity of it. You know, the, well, how did that happen? Um, it was as if the Lord himself said, I agree. Why am I talking about this today? That's a good question also. I'm talking about it because I believe that there is a season. There is a season for, for the purposes of the Lord. And I believe that God has established uh, His will, and His will will be performed. But there are those who are invited to participate in God's will. And as I was reading this passage, reading some more about about Zechariah and Elizabeth and eventually the birth of John the Baptist, I thought, here's the Holy Spirit inviting them through the angel. Uh, the, the Lord is inviting these people to participate in his divine purposes. But in order to do that, they needed to make a commitment. They needed to make a commitment to parenting, something that they had given up on perhaps long ago. They needed to make a commitment to the responsibility that it would be. I mean, they were already, they were already topping out in age. To take on an infant at this point, this, this is hard work. I mean, you guys have taken on an infant. You know it's kind of hard work, right? So uh, just when you thought you'd be relaxing and you know, enjoying a cruise here and there, now all of a sudden, all of a sudden you've got to take care of little ones. And that just, that's, a, that's a commitment. In addition to that commitment, they were told to raise their child in a way that would be different from all the other children in those communities. And you might think, well, that wouldn't be hard because here's uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth haven't had their own child, so now they finally get their child. They're, gonna, you know, they're old enough and wise enough to know they'll do everything right. But I don't know about that. I think when we're old, we're, we're probably a lot more lenient and more relaxed than we used to be when we were young. And, uh, and so they probably would have been pretty, pretty reasonably relaxed parents. I mean, they were... They were religious, you know, they were upright, they didn't do anything wrong, so we know that they lived good lives, good moral lives. But at the same time, they were being called by God into a new level, a new level of, of I don't know, I guess of, of abstinence perhaps from the ways of the world. They were told to raise John so that he drank no strong drink and had no, none of the fruit of the vine. He was to be raised as a Nazarite, which is hard. Which one of us wants to set our kid apart to be weird? Yeah, none of us want our kids to be weird. We want our kids to be accepted everywhere they go. We want them to be cherished. We want them to be celebrated. We want them to rise to the occasion. We don't want to give them an, you know, give them an unfair uh, handicap right from the get-go. But John the Baptist was going to end up being raised in the wilderness until the day that he made his public appearance. 
He was going to be a bit of a strange cat, if you know what I'm saying. And this Zechariah and Elizabeth, faithful people who loved the Lord, were called so that they might set their child apart and consecrate their child for the purposes of the Lord because he had a divine purpose. I think that Satan has tried to eliminate a generation or two in our nation. And I think that there are little churches all around America that are in many ways just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, if I can stretch the metaphor a little. Faithful, honoring God, living righteous lives, pursuing Jesus, faithful with the message, faithful in their love that they show to one another, reaching out to the community around them the best way they can with the resources that they have. But in many ways, they feel barren. Mega church down the street's got all the people, but the faithful churches are just faithfully doing what they need to do. And the time has come for us to offer our incense before the Lord because we've drawn the short, the short straw or whatever it might be. And we've, and we've been chosen to bring our incense before the Lord and we're lifting up our hands in worship. And I think that there are many churches that represent the sort of modern day, Elizabeth and Zechariah, whom God wants to use to raise up a generation that will usher in the return of the king. Could I be so bold as to suggest that Jesus is coming soon? Could I be so bold as to suggest that there needs to be a generation of church parents, parent churches, that will commit to raising up a generation that is set apart from the world, set apart from the worldliness that would so easily beset us, set apart from strong drink, which is a metaphor for many things, but most, most especially anything that's intoxicating, that draws our hearts away from God, that causes us to worship something other than Him. Could I suggest that we, Zechariah and Elizabeth, churches, are being called by God to not be barren in our old age? That we are being called by God to bear a child who will declare the ways of the Lord, make straight the paths of the Lord, a, vo a voice crying in a wilderness. And if I want to press that metaphor even further, what is that going to mean for you and for me? Because we are members of this body of Christ. And if indeed we are to be with child, as it were, who is that child? Uh, very practically speaking, I think it's the kids we have upstairs. I think it's the kids we have in the youth group, in the Youth for Christ program that we have here. I think it's the kids in the community around us, in the high schools that we want to reach and that we're praying for. I think it's the kids in Africa that we're trying to reach through our through our partnership with Emoyeni and, and their mission. It's I think it's the kids in in in, uh, in in places we have not yet been. Maybe it's those kids that are 
rescued by Dave Smithist and his crowd, uh, rescuing them out of out of uh, the, the war zone war zone in Ukraine and 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 having them relocated. Maybe there'll be a generation of believers who, because they were relocated to Germany and to Norway, maybe twenty years from now, thirty years from now, they'll be strong believers at pillars of the church in Norway. God only knows. But is it possible that we are being invited by God? Could we be invited by God to bear that beautiful pregnancy? That small churches like ours could affect dramatic change in the landscape around us, in the spiritual landscape around us, because we are committed to a vision, a purpose that God gives us. A number of years ago, God gave us a purpose and he gave us a vision as a fellowship. And I just want to remind you of that vision as a fellowship. Not everybody has the same call. Some are called to some things and others to others. But we have been called by the Lord to focus on a new generation rising up. If indeed God calls us to this, then what manner of lives ought we to live? In what way ought we to live? So that the young generation growing up around us says, I want to be just like you. So the young generation rising up will not say, I reject your instruction, but will instead come seeking our instruction because they will have a great war to fight. And we will help them sharpen their swords. It's funny that the same angel, just six months later, uh, appears to Mary. She's a little different. She's not, she's not an old person who is barren. No, on the contrary, she's a virgin. She's like Elizabeth and Zechariah. She has set her heart on honoring the Lord. And honoring the Lord with her body uh, has been a big deal to her. And uh, she's not just a virgin because she's young, although we assume that she is young. I think we, we all have this idea that Mary was a teenager at the time. Uh, maybe she was in her mid-teens or late teens, I don't know. But we all assume that she was, she was young. She was betrothed to be married, so she probably was a young woman. But she had chosen to honor the Lord with her body. She had chosen to honor the Lord with her sexuality. She had chosen to honor the Lord with her purpose. She was also one of those who was waiting for and expecting Messiah to come. And she was highly favored by God because God had seen this. There is a generation who will carry the Lord within them. As he is preparing to return, there is, a, there is an incarnation in every one of us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so while we are also in, in one way carrying the next generation, we are at the same time carrying Christ. But the young generation maybe identifies and can identify with Mary more readily than they can Elizabeth and Zechariah. 
And the Holy Spirit would come to them and say, would you be willing to carry this burden, this great joy, but this burden? Because there's a cost to carrying Christ. Mary is amazing. She is a remarkable woman. And while we do not venerate Mary, it is good for us to contemplate Mary. We don't venerate her because the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we do not worship the mother of God, but we worship God alone. Nevertheless, Mary is worthy of our contemplation and our great honor because of what she represents, because of her faithfulness to the Lord and because of the great pain and suffering that that must have caused her. And yet, and yet she did it. And she becomes for us a challenge, I think. A challenge for each of us in our hearts and particularly for a young generation who will carry Christ into their world. Um, just this week I had an amazing uh, revelation. Somebody shared a message with me and I never thought about it before, but Mary is uh, sort of the archetypal new Eve in a way if you think about it, because um, remember Eve was the one who took the fruit from the tree and ate it, gave it to her husband. He ate it, Adam, and so sin entered the whole world. Remember that? Well, the Bible tells us that from the fruit of the woman would come the one who would crush the head of the serpent, right? And so Mary is, of course, that one, the fruit of her womb being the one who crushed the head of the serpent. But Somebody said it this way. They said, when Mary said yes to the Lord here in the incarnation, what she was saying yes to was allowing the fruit of her womb to be placed back on the tree. The fruit of her womb being Christ and the tree being the cross. And the fruit of Mary's womb was placed on the tree again so that we might take from the tree of life. What an incredible poetic Completion, isn't it? Yeah, that's Eastern Orthodox teaching, but beautiful, beautiful. These things are worthy of our contemplation, I would say. <laughs> I think there is a, uh, a call for us as a fellowship to be willing to bear the generation that will usher in the return of the Lord. There is also a call for us, as there was for Mary, to carry Christ within us and to be faithful as we do that. And that's going to mean making decisions. But it's interesting to me that John the Baptist was not allowed to drink strong drink. He was a Nazarite. Jesus, on the other hand, had no such requirements. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever thought about that? Why should it be that John the Baptist has all the rules and Jesus doesn't? I'm sure John the Baptist was like really frustrated by that at some point in his life. That, well, my cousin Jesus, man, he gets away with anything. Over there. Of course, Jesus didn't get away with anything. But we do know that Jesus was, uh, was pretty um, independent at age 12. He was hanging around in Jerusalem when his parents left to go home and he was still there. And they had to come looking for him. In three days, they couldn't find him. We know that story, right? Um, Powerful thought from uh, 
from uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, a 12th century abbot from France. He said that uh, in, in that event, Jesus, it says he obeyed his parents and he did what they said. Jesus submitted himself to the teaching of a woman, his mother. What a powerful thought. Jesus surrendered himself instead of, and it's not just Jesus, but God submitted himself to the instruction of men and women. A man and a woman. What a thought, eh? Oh, there's so much in the incarnation that we can just really sink our teeth into. It's really beautiful stuff. But I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to bring this to your attention today because I think uh, we have a call as a church. I just really do. I think we're called as a church with a unique purpose. I think that purpose is related to this next generation. And I don't know how long God will have us here doing this. But for now, we need to give it everything we've got. I think we need to give it everything we've got in prayer. You might not know how to work with young people, but you certainly know how to pray. And you certainly can pray for this generation around us that's rising up, not just in our community, but all around us. I mean, some of us, our default thoughts are, what a terrible generation is being raised up. Right? Isn't that our default thought? Some of us, we think, oh, wow, this place is going to the bad place in a handbasket. It's happening real fast. Look at that generation, all those millennials, and then what comes after the millennials, whatever that is. That's our default, isn't it? These are our default thoughts. Is it possible that we can change our default thoughts to being prayers for the generation that's rising up? Because there has never been a generation like this generation. Never. They will have challenges unlike our challenges, and they will need strength from those who stand steadfast in the faith, as you and I have. They will need encouragement. They will need financing. They will need to be thrust into the ministry. They will need to be sent from one nation to another. They will, be, they will need to be encouraged when they come back from those places, depressed because the gospel seems to make no, no, no mark, that it's not taking traction. But we need to stand with them steadfast. We need to be in prayer, interceding on their behalf, asking God to open up the doors for them, that they can march through them, and that they can carry the gospel with courage, that they not, they not compromise their faith when all of their friends seem to be going the wrong way. Oh, God, that we would intercede on behalf of the generation that is arising. This morning we finished our worship set with a song, Believe For It, which is very popular right now, as you, as you well know, winning lots of awards. And thank you, Cece Winans, for just a stunning, stunning song. This idea, Believing For It, this is right here in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah and Elizabeth couldn't believe at first, or they, they, they failed to understand how God could actually do this in their old age, and Zechariah had to... He had to suffer the, uh, the, the indignity of being mute for a while. And I think that's a grace of God that those of us who are unbelievers are made mute so that we can't destroy the faith of those who do believe, right? So we, God can shut us up, and that'll be our default face, and our default word right there is... <laughs> Until we can speak with faith and boldness, right? Until we can actually declare what God declared. Until we can believe for it. That, that's what God will just keep us silent. But Mary was different, and, uh, and it says right here, 
The angel answered her when she asked, How can this be, for I am a virgin? In verse 35, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And we want to pray that for our generation, for this young generation that's rising up, that the Holy Spirit will overshadow them, the power of the Holy Spirit, the Most High. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. For nothing will be impossible with God. <laughs> and actually, the Greek word means, the Greek actually says, for nothing will be impossible for every word of God. It's actually what the word, what the Greek says there. It's it's a little, a little awkward to read it, um, and so the translators have translated it as nothing will be impossible for God. But essentially, what the word means, the Greek means, is that every single word of God has to be fulfilled. It is impossible for the word of God to not be fulfilled. That's that's what this actually means. God said, "I'm coming back." Jesus said, "I'm coming back." It's impossible for that word not to be fulfilled. Right? So it's going to be fulfilled. God has made many promises that must be fulfilled because the word of God cannot return void. Cannot return void. So the word of God must be fulfilled in our lives and in the lives of our children. Nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Oh, that we may raise our children to have this kind of faith that says, Yes, Lord, whatever you say, that's what I want. May we have this kind of faith that we will carry the, the impregnation of the Lord in whatever the vision is that God gives us, that we will carry that as she carried, that we will say, Yes, Lord, I am your servant. Whatever it is that you desire from me, it'll be yours. And, uh, uh, Elizabeth goes on to say in verse 45 of, of Mary, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed. I want you to be blessed. I want Living Hope Family Church to be the most blessed fellowship that you and I have ever been a part of. I want Living Hope Family Church to be blessed by seeing the birthing of the vision that God has given us. May it be that we have the faith to believe for it. And may it be that we also, in our old age, carry that anointing. And may it may be that those who are in their young years will say, yes, yes, Lord, we too will carry. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your blessing. Thank you for your encouragement as we consider Advent and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ the first time. We can't help but hold our breath for the coming of the Lord the second time. Jesus May you be so real in our hearts and in our minds that we can practically feel your presence here, tangibly. Pour out your grace upon this fellowship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.